welcome, Legionaries, to episode 17 of Legion Cast. Today we're going to be talking about Tales of Heresy, our first anthology book. Joining me is my usual co-host, Brandon. And we've got the whole panel on this time with our buddy Paul and my brother Maniple. Say hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's great to be back here again. I am Warwick's co-host, Brandon, as always. And joining us today again are Maniple and Paul. Say hello. Doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Should be fun. First anthology. Greetings, fellow Longbeards. Good to be back. Read and remember your histories. If you don't, they'll come back and bite you. Right on. So let's talk about our what do we all have on the hobby table. I've got just a bunch of tactical marines. I know I talked about that last time. It's been a, a slow hobby cycle for me because I'm getting back into the work routine and I've really kind of been slow getting back into it. Maniple's got me playing a bunch of dumb video games, so hobby time has suffered and it's all Maniple's fault. Yeah, I uh, after your trip down here, I definitely slowed down on the hobby quite a bit. Uh, just decided to relax a little bit because we played a ton and we painted a ton. So didn't want to didn't want to hit a burnout too bad, but uh, for eight, on the Age of Sigmar front, the new corn book came out. As you guys know, I'm a pretty big corn player. I enjoy uh, I enjoy yelling blood for the blood god and skulls for the skull throne. So I've just been working on some blood letters because uh, demons are looking pretty good in that book. And who knows? Maybe uh, they said that demons of the ruin storm will be coming this summer, so maybe I can use them in there too. Uh, Manipal, what are you working on? Well. I have some, still have some orcs on my work table working on. I did get my airbrush up and running and found it was really nice to do some base coats on some bigger models. So again, that's still more 40K stuff. But I, I do have now um, uh, a bunch of bits for some extra headhunters for my Alpha Legion. Those can be coming together pretty soon here. So that's the next thing on my table. And despite my uh, computer games, I'm able to do plenty of hobbying. So I'm not sure what... Uh, works problem is low moral character likely almost certainly <laughs> cool yeah for me um since we did the last episode i moved into my new place uh haven't really done too much in the way of modeling but what i did finally get together is my own gaming table um for the guys here they can see the recording i've got it set up here um so yeah finally got my own gaming table went and bought some neoprene mats so uh, I'm all set for the next time uh, Brandon wants to come down. We can get some games in. Yeah, I'm excited because uh, your your setup is perfect, and it's going to be perfect for some Zone Mortalis uh, and some Titanicus as well. Uh, speaking of Zone Mortalis, should we get into hobby news? The uh, you know there was uh, there was a small event uh, over the past weekend, very small niche thing. You guys might have heard of it. Uh, it's called Adepticon, and there were some announcements. We got uh, 40K 10th Edition, uh, along with the Lion announced, which I don't know what the big deal is. I've had the Lion for like almost a year now. So for some of us, he never left. <laughs> but, uh, you know, exciting for them. I'll be excited to see what kind of changes they make on that front. But on the Heresy front, we are getting uh, a Black Book. I believe is what we're calling it and referring to it. It's a campaign supplement book for the Siege of Chthonia. And there's some cool stuff in here uh, that I'm really excited about, particularly the new mission pack, as well as full Zone Mortalis rules, which will be a lot of fun. Yeah, that update to Zone Mortalis will be really nice. Uh, it kind of has been the last piece of the rules side of the puzzle that's been missing. So it'll be cool to see that. 
Plus, Siege of Chthonia means my Sons of Horus are about to get a buff, hopefully. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm really curious as to what what else gets added besides uh, the new missions or the new mission pack. Uh, I know we, we kind of chatted about maybe getting a couple more units. That'll be really interesting. And that really sets the stage for a few more of these black books, a few more Legion supplements, so to speak. And I'm pretty excited about that. I like I like when anything like this comes out. It's really neat. I know uh, it, it would... The, the thing that they talked about, the new mission packs, was uh, it sounds like you're going to be needing more line. And I know we've kicked this dead horse enough, but that means that GW really needs to shift gears and get some infantry supplements out there rather than just pushing vehicle after vehicle. And then I don't know, uh, last bit of news here. I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, Forge World over the weekend stealth pulled all the resin super heavies for the, for the legions. So... I would guess we're about to get a round of super heavies for our do, next releases. Does that also include the Thunderhawk? Uh, I don't know. Let me check the Thunderhawk. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with with that going forward. Because to my knowledge, they haven't really pulled any of the tanks. It it was just the super heavies. So the Thunderhawk is still live up on the site, much to my disappointment, because I would have loved a plastic Thunderhawk. But the Mastodon is gone. Um, the legion glaive is gone and the uh falchion i believe it's perhaps how it's pronounced falchion. also falchion. yeah falchion also gone but but they, they haven't touched the malachador or any of the imperial guard side stuff no what i saw the 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 solar auxiliary auxilia stuff is still there i would guess that they're probably gonna get an update maybe after the legions are done would be my guess the Legion Stormbird is still up there, fellas, for a sweet $1,530. I'm not going to lie. The Stormbird's really cool. I just wish it wasn't resin. But uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting. Uh, I've always kind of played around with the idea of getting a Mastodon. Um, I just never wanted to deal with the plot, with the resin um, nastiness of putting one of those big tanks together. But, you know, if they come in plastic, I think that those would be some really interesting and fun kits. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to see if, if that uh, that ends up being the case. But since they're off the site, I would guess that that's going to be the case. Uh, all right. Well, I think we'll just keep it short and sweet here with the hobby and news section here today because we got a lot of stories to talk about today. So why don't we take a quick break and then we'll jump into Tales of Heresy. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a great break. I sure know we did. We are excited to dive into the kind of the first of the of its kind here books for uh, this is our first anthology uh, in the Heresy series. There's quite a few of these as we go without. And, uh, you know, hot take here. Honestly, I think that the first is kind of the best one. Um, there are definitely some good ones sprinkled throughout, but a lot of these stories I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, which I can't say about all the anthologies. There are about one or two that I really like in the other ones, but this one, I liked most of them. Um, so what, uh, what we're going to do here, we're going to change up the format of our book discussions a bit. We got the whole panel on, and each of us is going to talk about a couple of the stories that we really liked, and we'll have some debate and discussion. So uh, Warwick, why don't you lead us off with 
the first story in the book, Blood Games. Right. So I really like this story. I think it's just a great jumping off point. And Dan Amnett does a great job. It's a very tight, efficient story. I don't feel like there's a lot of wasted time. There's not a lot of wasted exposition. It starts off uh, very simply from the perspective of this kind of unknown figure talking about making his way across Terra. And the, the premise is a little ambiguous. You're not really sure why this guy is there until you find out very quickly that his mission is to infiltrate the Imperial Palace that is being under or that is now under construction. This is at a point in the timeline when uh, Rogel Dorn and his Imperial Fists are changing it from the Imperial Palace to the Imperial Fortress. And uh, I think the Dan Abnett does a very good job of kind of the subversion that our character goes through, how he kind of worms his way through this very tight security cordon. Uh, he he uh, uses a very wide variety of tools and tricks to get past everybody and to even fool the custodies. And it's not until kind of the, the early midpoint of the story where he actually makes it into this uh, kind of reliquary era area where the emperor is meditating and he takes a shot at the emperor. He's got a punch dagger that is laced with uh, toxins. He's distilled from like a, a local uh, narcotic and he's going to, he, his mission is to kill the emperor, but before he can make contact, his weapon is intercepted by these uh, stealthy protectors and in the very next scene, you know, he, he tries to make a getaway. His mission is a bust for now, but he'll try to make another attempt at it. He's subdued before then, and we find out in the next scene, this is actually one of the custodian guard. And he's participating in what's called a blood game, where it's basically where the custodians drop all their, or leave all their gear here at the palace, and they go hide out in the wilderness, and they try to work their way back into the palace to look for breaches in security, which is a really interesting concept to me. I think that's uh, well, it's one really good way of testing your security. I know like there are some home security agencies that actually have an outstanding bounty for any like tech hacker or whatever. I think uh, uh, home 80, uh, 80, I can't remember. Anyway, they have an outstanding bounty for anyone that can successfully hack their system. If they can find a breach in their system, they'll, they'll pay the hacker basically. So it's something that occurs in real life, kind of. But we find out that our, our character here is Amon Tur Turamakian, and he's kind of one of the senior custodies, and you get this really awesome look at the the characterization, kind of the, the theme that the custodies have, their customs, how their armor works, how their weaponry works. They have this really neat custom of their, for each kind of, specific event or important event in their live, lives, they gain another name. And so starting on the inside of their breastplate until it's completely full and starts to wrap around, their name is inscribed on their armor, starting at the inside, working around their belt, you know, going up around their shoulders, which is really cool. So it's, you know, Amon Turamakian, followed by like a thousand other names because he's so senior He's served in uh, a multitude of battles. He's got a thousand honors, and it's it's a really neat custom. So they're they kind of wear their their pride on their sleeves, so to speak. It's just really neat. And then 
very quickly it transitions into you know his next mission where he's sent to investigate this kind of uh this high lord that's suspected to be a rogue or this this trade uh, anyway this nobleman who's who's trade dude tra- yeah trade dude who is suspected of being a spy for Horus so the custodies deploy under the guise of being other trade envoys and they want to go cut a deal with this guy and they're wearing these displacer cloaks that make them look smaller so they don't look like nine foot tall genetically engineered super soldiers anyway they get there and it's all very pleasant until their cover is blown and they run to the throne room to pin this guy and you know accuse him when Rogel Dorn teleports in and the important part about this is is that it's pretty obvious to the custodies that this guy is an agent for Horus, but it turns out he's actually a double agent for Rogel Dorn because Rogel Dorn is using him to gain information on Horus's fleet movements. And there's this, this kind of contentious moment where the custodies are ready to die for their task to the emperor when Rogel, uh, when Rogel Dorn says, no, we're on the same side. You need to listen to me. And it's just kind of this interesting dynamic that the Imperium is so vast that even the the closest people to the Emperor, being his his elite guard and even his sons, are often at odds because they don't always communicate. And that's just kind of the the duality of the Imperium, so to speak, or the the uh, the very intricacies of the Imperium. And yeah, this gave me big U.S. government before nine eleven vibes. Because, I mean, if you if you remember that time, the Department of Homeland Security did not exist. It was created because of that, because these intelligence agencies didn't talk to each other. So it's, uh, it, it's something that is, is very real in any government, is a lack of communication between these forces and a need to be aligned. Um, so I thought, I thought that that was really cool, and it was an interesting way of showing how the emperor's forces are not really on the same page. Right. And then this, this double agent is eliminated by Horace's assassin basically. And it, it, you know, they, they all have to start from square one after that because Horace Dorn both lose their informants and Amantur Mackin basically goes home empty handed. So it's, it's really important that the, the Imperium even at this early stage of the rebellion, doesn't isn't necessarily showing the unity that they've been so proud about this whole time. And I, like I said, I think it's a really efficient story. There's a lot of uh, interesting stage building going on. Like we know that Terra exists, we haven't really been there yet. Uh, so we finally, we finally really see what's what's kind of going on on Terra. And the perspective of the custo- uh, custodian guard, the custodians are really cool to me. So. I think it's like I said, a great story, and that's uh, that's kind of my take on Blood Games. That's a great, great add in there, Brandon. So thank you. Yeah, it was definitely a strong start to the to the anthology. It was really interesting. It's it's very small. It's what I want out of a short story. It's very small, compact, and it tells you what it needs to tell you without leaving too much out, but also not going into too much detail. I liked the length. I guess is what I'm saying. I liked some of the little details, like especially when he's going, he's making one of his breaks through the Himalayas and he runs into these gene modified ogrins that he gets this drug from. That's a powerful poison. And it's so much little world building that goes on in these little nooks and crannies. I really, uh, 
what I would love to see more of that in the stories rather than there were 10,000 ships that were fighting against the orcs as they flew through space. Like, well, I like the little stuff. Those little details really make it feel like a lived in world. And that's what initially got me hooked in the first place on 40 K. I thought one of the early scenes where he's describing how he made his way across the continents with the, it's like the yearly worker migration. So it's, I, it, to me, it kind of paints the scene of, you know, there are people looking for work. There Maybe there's some young adults coming of age and they need to make a living. So all at once they gather on these big personnel ships or cargo ships and they, you know, sell, sail across to where all the work is at. And you know, it's just something that happens every year. And that's, that's how he maintains his cover getting through it. It's, it's another small detail about how people kind of, even regular people live on Terra that's really interesting to me. I think... The big thing for me that I that stood out was the displacer fields that they were explaining. These this type of tech that they can wear that completely alters their appearance. You know, it has an almost like Mission Impossible like mask kind of feel where they rip it off and they go, ah, I was a nine foot tall custodies the entire time, and everyone goes, what? But you know, it it's cool to have that kind of stuff in there because you do ask those questions of how does a nine foot tall superhuman walk around and you know nobody noticed that hey that guy's just wearing a wig you know um the other thing i noticed was uh, it's the second mention of the lucifer blacks they've returned from legion again to be the super cool super elite bad guys that immediately get stomped on but it's cool to have them in there again yeah that and that is an abnet creation uh and I, I know he throws them in a couple more times down the line, but yeah, it's always neat to uh, to hear from them. All right, so why don't we uh, why don't we jump into the next story here, uh, which I'll be covering, which is Wolf at the Door. Now, this might have been my favorite uh, story in this entire anthology. Uh, we start out we're with the Space Wolves, and uh, some of these Space Wolves have been recalled to. Uh, rendezvous with the legion to head for prospero and i really appreciate this right here because it sets up immediately this is the timeline where we are this is where we are in the timeline this is what's happening i think a good short story like this the galaxy is a big place so i need something to anchor me in where we are but this uh this wolf lord bulvi is bringing this sector into compliance and he has sworn an oath to lehman russ to bring this entire sector into compliance and it, uh, it starts basically at the end of the campaign. He's thrown down the tyrants. They're on their knees begging for their lives, and he spares them, uh, which tells us a lot about his character right away, um, that you know he's merciful. And we get this idea, really, that like, this guy believes in the Great Crusade. You know, he, believe- he is bought into the hype. He is on that train of, you know, this is a force for good, and this is what we're doing here, and get on board. Well, he receives his order to rendezvous with Lehman Russ to head to Prospero, and at the same time, he also finds out that some warp storms have cleared, and there's actually another planet that they have not gone to uh, that just has been revealed. And his command squad and is all telling him, hey, leave that planet. You have done what you need to do here for the wolf. You're being recalled. We need to go to Prospero. But Bolvai says, I swore an oath to 
bring every planet to compliance. And this is a habited world in this sector. I cannot go back on my oath. And it, it does throw in some justification there, which I, I liked of, he says, hey, you know, it's going to take us eight weeks to get our company all assembled anyway. So we're going to go check this, just us, we're going to go check this planet out and try and bring them into the fold. So he takes his wolf guard and one ship, the I believe it's called the Iron Wolf, and heads to this planet. And when he gets there, he's immediately greeted and they just say, you know, welcome, uh, we'll bring you to the Senate. And he's really thrown off because most places there are like huge parades. This, this world's been isolated from the rest of humanity for thousands of years at this point. He just, you look around, you're like, I think that the coming of people from space to say like humanity is re, you know, is coming back together. It'd be kind of a bigger deal than just a couple of dudes in a car. And so he's really thrown off, but uh, they get to the Senate and the Senate is in session and they're arguing, but they, they stop and they listen to Bolvi who gives the Imperium, the great crusade speech, as I like to put it, of, Hey, the emperor is reigniting humanity. He's reuniting everybody. Join the fold. Your lost brothers have come to bring you back into the, this great, crusade that we are are conducting and they are basically like thanks but no thanks uh we have bigger problems here and right at that point they hear that there's that their their ship the iron wolf has been engaged and what we come to find out is that every so often these warp storms clear and these guys get raided by dark eldar um it it, i i think i enjoyed it so much because iron within has just come out and so I was getting a real Iron Within vibes. Well, they lose their battle barge, but the the Space Wolves decide, okay, well, you know, we're stuck here. We're going to fight a guerrilla campaign against these people. And I don't want to go into too much further detail at this point, but uh, the they start conducting this guerrilla campaign and they really get the, the people of this planet on board with them. And they're like, hey, these people are here to help us. And they finally... The Senate gets dissolved and the people of the planet assist the Space Wolves in just killing the Archon. So the Senate's not dissolved. The The Senate had reached an agreement. Well, they kind of, the society kind of reached this agreement that every seven years when this raid takes place, they would put together a tithe, basically, of all their prisoners and then when they ran out of prisoners, they do a random lottery of gener- generic civilians. And they'd take them out to these holding areas out in the middle of nowhere where the Dark Eldar would come and collect their prisoners. And that would, uh, you know, that would ap- appease the Eldar for a while. Because the Eldar came early this go-around, the Senate tried to call a meeting with the Dark Eldar and cut a deal. When the Dark Eldar got there they killed or they tortured and killed all of these Senate members. So the Senate's actually destroyed, not dissolved. They were dissolved with violence. So they, they end up, they, they've destroyed the, the dark Eldar Archon. They take out like a, um, a plasma generator. I think it is, um, that, that really damages the dark Eldar and, you know, they're successful. Everybody's happy. And Bolvi looks at, this new kind of young leader of these people and says, 
I'm, I'm so thrilled. The Emperor's going to be thrilled. We're all super happy. And the, this this young kid says, hey, that we appreciate your help, but we're staying independent. And Bol, you can just tell from the writing that Bolvai's just broken by this. He says, please join the Imperium. Please do that. And as they're having this conversation, he's getting contacted from his his fleet that they've broken through this through the um, out of the warp and are taking position above the planet to come extract them. And this guy says, "Nope, we want to be free. Um, again, we really appreciate your help, but we're not joining. We're not going to swap out one group of tyrants for another." And Bullvi just says, all right, so be it, and blows his head off right there and immediately calls up to his ship and says, all right, start the invasion. And the last line in the book is uh, the people were still cheering when the first bombs dropped, which I think is really, like, really telling. I kind of get the impression with a lot of the stories in in this collection was that they wanted to really reinforce the grim darkness so let's have something that's like really cool, a lot of great action, really wonderful heroes, but then somebody has to get kicked in the guts at the end. And that's and in so many of these stories, it's the same way. You think it's going to end one way, but then it goes dark. And that's kind of what made 40K, especially in this era, stand out from a lot of the other fiction that was out there that, you know, you go to Barnes & Noble or, you guys remember uh, Borders you know, or uh, The Book Nook or any of those places? And how how much of that fiction you'd look at and just say, ah, no, that's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. I gravitated towards this because it it, it was so different from the other, other offerings out there. Not just because it was dark, but because it dark, but it it had it meant something. Because now it's showing this is what the wolves are fighting for, for this unity at any cost, even even to their own you know sense of honor, in, in a sense. It's it's a good it's a good moral uh, question that it leaves you with at the end and i think that's kind of a major through line with all of these short stories is at some point every character in all of these stories has this moment where they have to decide where their loyalties lie and where their priorities are being placed like in blood games it was about that trade-off between rogel dorn and the custodies of like a primarch's telling you to stand down but your duty to protect the emperor is telling you to go through the guy. Like, what are you going to do in this situation? Kind of thing. I think that's going to be a common theme in the rest of these stories as we get through them. So there's a really good and consistent characterization of the space wolves all throughout this story. I really like how they're described. It's very much that kind of the OG William King characterization, like they're straight up space Vikings. Later on, we get a pretty good, a uh, pretty good story about them in the, the Prospero Burns book by Dan Abbott. And it's a, it's an outstanding story, but this story right here is damn near perfect as well. It's super economical. There's not a lot of wasted words in it. I think Bolvi is an awesome character. Um, if you've ever read Eaters of the Dead by Michael uh, Crichton or watch the 13th Warrior, you know, Bolvi is the, the, the main Viking dude from that. But uh, there's there's this really cool characterization of Bullvi where he's got this kind of inner inner beast the whole time. Whenever he goes into conflict, this wolf in his heart is always going, "Now are you gonna like I I want to tear something to shreds now?" 
And it's not until the end, towards the end of the book, when he locks eyes with the Eldar Archon, the wolf inside him asks now, and he says, now. And he lets out this blood-curdling howl and charges in, and it's just this epic, earth-shaking duel between them that is just so good. The, the writing on it's just outstanding. Yeah, there's some really good action scenes in it. I think my favorite scene in the entire story is when they're at the first um, tribute ground. And this Dark Eldar comes out and he's like, I'm Bolvi of the Emperor's Sixth Legion. These people are under my protection. And he goes, "Who? You know, who's in charge here? And the one Eldar is like, I'll take your message back to our master. And he's like, oh, you're not in charge? Okay, we're not talking anymore. And just shoots him with his plasma pistol. <laughs> but yeah, Wolf of the Door is a really good story. I love, Manipal, what you said about the 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 grim darkness of it. Because it really is. It, it gutted me there at the end when he has to kill that kid and start, uh, and start that invasion. And that's kind of what I mean about how efficient the story is, is because we don't have a lot of time with these characters, but because they're at odds at the end, it really tears your heart. So that's, that's what makes the story great. And the, the zero hesitation on behalf of the space wolves is pretty heart wrenching too, because before he swings his ax, you already have a feeling, you know what he's going to do. It's, it's really good writing. Good on Mike Lee. I think he's only done a couple of stories for the heresy, but great writer. Definitely. Um, And then with that, I'm going to piggyback into what I think is the same story done. Not as well, unfortunately. And I say, unfortunately, because it's my boys, it's the first Legion. Um, and that is Call of the Lion. First off, I don't understand why this is called Call of the Lion. The lion's not in it. He never appears. There's nothing lion related other than uh, Belath going back and whining at the end of the story. But it follows two chapter masters of the First Legion. Uh, Astalan, who is a Terran-born, kind of grizzled old veteran of the First Legion. And I love kind of this this characterization we get of Astalan. Now, again, this is the first Legion. These guys fought alongside the Emperor. These guys were there with the Custodes destroying the Thunder Warriors. Like, these guys have seen some shit. You really kind of get that sense with Astalan. He's he's very battle-wary. He, they're, flo- they're going through this very unoccupied area of space, and he almost seems content with it. Um, in a way that, you know, he's just like, I'm just happy to have a break from the constant campaigning. Um, but he gets this this younger Calibanite chapter master that joins him named Belath. And right from the beginning, Belath is immediately insubordinate. These guys are at odds almost from the first second that they meet each other. And they find a habited world. And Belath says, okay, so let's invade. And Aslan says, no, we're not going to invade until we know they're hostile. So we're going to go down there and try to talk to some people. Well, his meeting with them doesn't go well. He has to extract. um, And then they're able to broker some communications after fighting a small skirmish. Small skirmish. I say that like 2,500 people died in that skirmish just on one side. (laughs) There is one part where one one of the Astartes gets like, an explosion bowls him head first into a tree and he just gets up and walks it off, which I thought was awesome. (laughs) But 
these two chapter masters are just completely at odds with each other. And the whole time Astalan is trying to bring these, this planet peacefully into the fold and Belath never gives them a chance. Well, the negotiations that they set up end up going bad. It turns out that Belath had been positioning the fleet to uh, invade immediately anyway. And these people notice they're like, well, you're setting up to invade us. So why should we believe that your intentions are genuine? At which point Belath summons in a bunch of Terminators and kills all these people. And at the end of this, I don't know whose side you're supposed to come down on because Astalan goes too far in trying to pursue the peaceful solution, but Belath never even considers it. And maybe you're not supposed to cheer for either of them. I don't know. I think that... So, Belath... Belath is the insubordinate one, right? So, I think... Belloth makes a good point that when they find this world, they're monitoring Vox traffic, and it's like seven different nations that are hostile to one another. There is no world peace. It's not a unified world. So when um, when he's like, we don't know who to make contact with, so we should just, you know, integrate everybody, just, just order the invasion. It'll be a lot easier than trying to figure out who's in charge. I kind of get that. But uh, I think Astalan maybe trying to pursue peace isn't, totally out of line i mean uh i think he he should have tried he just had a shitty way i think it's i think that part was a little bit contrived i I think it's trying to show the conflict brewing on caliban between the terrans and the calibanites that would eventually turn into the where the legion is split during the the heresy which is funny though because the terran in the story ends up joining luther right I think that's what Brandon told me earlier. Yeah, so these two characters come back, and they do not fall on the sides that you would think. Mm -hmm. But it it shows, and it it, but it draws out that question that you had in uh, the Wolf at the Door was: Is the Imperium really a good idea? And should there not be a place for people who just want to be free? And should these people have been allowed just to, I mean, they're not hurting anybody doing what they're doing. Why not just leave them alone? Why get in the midst of this politics and bomb the UN? You know, why not just just move on? And if some of them want to join, then let them get on the ships and join you. If not, let them stay home. And I think that's where a lot of this conflict later on comes, because I think if you if you caught Horace at a lucid moment, Horace might even say he's trying to free humanity from this looming tyrannical dictatorship that, that the emperor is bringing. Uh, if I risk sounding like a heretic, uh, I you know guilty as charged. I suppose. What do you think, uh, Paul? Yeah. Again, I think it comes back to that theme of the book being loyalty and where you draw it, and that is kind of the cry of the traitor: is death to the false emperor. Um, whenever you get scenes in any of the books where the traitors are together, they always have this concept in their head that the Imperium betrayed them in some way, lied to them in some way. Um, or that their ideology never mixed well with them. I know, especially with like the Titan Legios, there was always this like through line with the traitor Titan Legios that like they never liked the Imperium and how it operated. And so the heresy was just their opportunity to finally say, yeah, we didn't like this anyway, so we're going to burn it down. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. You know, I we talked to this kind of to death when we talked about Mechanicum, but the Mechanicum went you're not surprised that they went traitor when you see it from their point of view. They've just been getting the short end of the stick. They've just been a factory for the emperor this whole time. 
Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot more in depth of why that is the case in that book. But yeah, you can 100% see why this was never a really good deal for them at any point. Um, you see that a lot in the Dark Angels through line where they just see their world getting strip mined. And these Calvinites are like, this is not a good deal for us. I just all of a sudden got thinking about Battle for the Abyss and the Saturnine fleets. You know, imagine you're a Saturnine fleet captain and now you're going to lose your rank and your your uh, the whole order of, of who you were to be subsumed into this new Imperial Navy. Why wouldn't you want to keep all your old battle honors and and your standing in your in your fleet? There's so many organizations like that that just get eaten up by this larger Imperium. And yeah, I'd, I'd feel betrayed too. I get it. There's a pretty strong theme of that in Prospero Burns too. And this is a, another story, but it, yeah, so it's, it's a through line in the Imperium is that a lot of people feel put out by this conglomerate, this amalgamation of the human race, basically. Yeah, well, and it, it does speak to you know who the Emperor is as a person. Because the Emperor is out for capital H humanity. And that's made very, very clear by how he operates and how he does everything. Um, I think, you know, we might get into that theme a little bit when Manipul talks about his story. Because we get a lot better view into who the Emperor is there. But um, it's very clear that he does not care about the little guy. I mean... He is ready for, he is willing to trade millions to save billions if he thinks that's what will happen. And he's not exaggerating when he says millions. All right. Well, I think we've belabored that point enough. Um, Paul, do you want to talk about, uh, is it Drescia? Am I saying that right? It's Decia. After Decia. Yeah. Um, So this one. Yeah, so after Decia, um, it's the final short story in the book. It's going to be covering a story about the World Eaters, the 12th Legion. Specifically, it's going to be following uh, Karn, captain of the 8th Assault Company. Um, For anybody that's coming to Heresy from 40K, Karn's a known individual even in that time period. So it's cool to see a story that involves him. Basically, the context for this is... The 12th Legion's been operating without their Primarch for some time. Uh, When Angron is found, the Primarch, he is stolen away from his planet by the Emperor and is transferred onto the flagship of the World Eaters. At this time, they're called the Warhounds. During this time, the leaders of the Warhounds are trying to basically contact Angron and try to talk to him about taking command of the Legion, but he's so disoriented and in a rage that anyone who's approached him up to this point has just been outright slaughtered. And basically it falls to Karn as the senior, the left, the remaining senior commander to enter the chamber and try to talk to Angron. The too long didn't read is Karn spends an hour of book time getting the crap beaten out of him by Angron while he tries to reason with him. But the longer view of it, I think, is pretty interesting. It introduces a lot of lore about the the world eaters that we haven't seen. Um, Angron, in like more lucid periods in the conversation, discusses a lot of the traditions that he's going to pass on to the warhounds, soon to be world eaters, like the scarification rituals and 
the like concept of like sworn brotherhood within his gladiatorial pits. And then on Karn's end, you get an interesting perspective, kind of going again on this play between loyalty, where at this point, Karn is a pretty staunch uh, imperialist, right? He is very much for the emperor. And a lot of his side of the conversation is trying to justify the emperor's actions to Angron. Because at this point, Angron sees the Emperor as somebody who stole him away from his sworn brothers, you know, on the night of their defeat and kind of stole that uh, closure of dying with his sworn battle brothers in battle. And he kind of views the Emperor in the same way as the people he opposed on the planet he was fighting on, which is these high lords that sat above and sneered down at people. And Karn is trying to, like, say, no, like, I've seen the Emperor get down nitty-gritty with the common people. Like, I saw him fight on this planet with us in the front lines, and it's a magnificent thing to see, you know. And um, so, again, it's this interesting idea of Karn trying to justify the Imperium to somebody who's only seen the worst of the Imperium presented to him. I think the line that sort of turns Angron at the end is... Karn basically says, look, you're, you recognize us as warriors. You can see our potential and you yourself are a great warrior who's looking to vent your rage and grief in war while we have an entire galaxy to burn in the name of the emperor. So join us, take your place as a rightful king and ruler of the 12th, and we can give you that. And that's kind of the, the final thing that sort of calms Angron down enough to say, all right, let's talk to these guys. So, interesting story. I thought it was uh, had a lot of cool points. Early on in the story, did you get the sense like he'd been driven mad by the butcher's nails, or was he always like that? Was that his personality? It seems like... Yeah, I guess we didn't really talk about that. Um, so, I think earlier... which Was it False Gods that Angron was first init- uh, introduced in? They kind of talked about the butcher's nails. He has these archaeotech... Like they, they're like literally nails embedded in his head that prevent him from feeling anything uh, but rage and pain unless he's in combat, in which case he feels ecstasy. I think in another short story with Lorgar, he says the nails help me dream and that's how he kind of views them. And so clearly he's not able to function, you know, on a normal mental state. It does seem like at the start of the story, it's the emperor stealing him away on the eve of the final battle from his people that kind of push him over the edge into the madness. It seems like at least from the stories he tells of like being on Decia and fighting with his battle brothers, he seemed to have better control over it. Um, but it was just that the grief and the rage of losing his battle brothers and not being able to die with them is what kind of drove him over the edge and let him be completely subsumed by the nails. And there too, when by the time Karn gets in there, hasn't Angron already killed like ten guys? And he he's in there walking around, and he you know he, he's trying to not pay attention to the bloody bodies and the gore spattered walls around him. Um, I don't and but it, and it, he said that none of the people who went in were afraid because they knew this was their primarch. They volunteered to go. That was pretty cool. And like you know those world leaders are. You know, I guess warhounds at this time—they're pretty badass. I got to give them credit for that. Yeah, 
Yeah, I always enjoy a glimpse of the Legion that was, like who they were pre-heresy, basically. And I think it's, um, you kind of see that in Wolf at the Door and a little bit in the one about the Dark Angels. But yeah, you really get this this sense of honor. You know, Karn talks about how the Emperor gave us this duty and he commanded us that we not raise arms against our Primarch. Because their warrior instinct, Karn is fighting with himself a good deal of this story to not raise his hand against Angron, even if to defend himself because the Emperor commanded him, you cannot raise your hand against your own Primarch. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, I think I remember, Maniple, you've got a bunch of the old white dwarves where they talk about the origins of some of the Primarchs. The one about Angron is that on that planet, they had the warriors had a custom of digging their own grave before their final battle. So the the backstory of of Decia is that that was the battlefield that Angron and his uh, his city eaters, as they were called at the time, were all meant to die. And the emperor teleported him out of that battle before he could die with his brothers and sisters. And if that's part of what pushed Angron over the edge, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, especially knowing how that relationship between Angron and his legion is going to go from here. Um, the World Eaters, more than any other legion, would have benefited from their Primarch never being found, uh, I think. So it's it's interesting to kind of see the uh, get in the inside his head in in his more lucid times uh, i was going to say something about that too which is during the conversation with karn you do get like brief glimpses like i said like angron goes through like periods of manic mania and then he'll hit like a lucid period and like during those lucid periods he shows like real competency like karn is describing a battle scene and it's describing how Angron's pacing the chamber and you can see he's like mentally like mapping out the battlefield that Karn is describing and like ordering troops. And he's like, Perturabo did this and that and ordered us to do this. And Angron's like, good. Yes, that's the right. That's a good tactical move. What did you do next? You know? And uh, it is, I th there's a later story with Lorgar and Angron like working together and Lorgar kind of, is like talking about like if the butcher's nails had never been implanted, like what would have Angron have been? Like he was supposed to be like this really noble, you know, statesman and accomplished warrior. If he just hadn't had the nails implanted, what would have happened to him? What would the Legion have become? Well, Angron was supposed to be an empath. Um, he was supposed to pick up on other people's emotions very easily. Now it's hard to do that when you have archaeotech nails driven into your skull um, that say everything is anger all the time. So it's uh, it is it is a bit of a tragedy um, in that way. I did want to jump in there and say, of course, Perturabo made the right call. Perturabo always makes the right call. Come on now. I thought that was a really interesting interaction too. Karn says the name Perturabo a couple of times, and Angron says, "You've said that name name before. Who is that? Or what is that?" And Karn says, another Primarch like you. And Angron's, he, he kind of hesitates. He's not really sure what to think at this because he's like, another like me. Another like me. And he he almost maybe has this recognition that like, I'm less than I should have been. 
like Paul said, like what would he have been without the nails? And it's uh, to imagine the Primark that should have been is something really tragic to imagine because again, like would he have been more like Gilliman? Would he have been more like Horus? Cause uh, he's very much on the spectrum with the night haunter where he's, he's very much a monster in his own right. But you know, would he have been a nice guy like Vulcan? Would he have been just like this, this epic chivalrous knight? Uh, we'll never know. It's, it's, kind of heart-wrenching when you think about it. I would never say that to his face. But yeah, overall a really cool story and uh, our first real deep look at the world eaters. Um, up until this point, we've only had very short caricatures like Angron in the first three books and uh, we had that world eaters guy in Battle for the Abyss. That was about it. So it's cool to see a bit more of their lore explored. Scroll was a champ. Yeah. The World Eaters really are one of the more fascinating legions because from the outside, they're just perceived as these rage-mad barbarians. Um, and when you when you dig into who they actually are, there's a lot of a lot of nuance to their character, and that it is a very long road that they go down to become what they eventually become. Um, and it, it's a very interesting one too. One of the things that I really like about um, corn in the blood in in, uh, in the fantasy setting that doesn't translate well into the you know the futuristic setting is that corn is he's the blood god but he's also a god of martial might so he he likes skill just as much as brawn you know in the 40k setting cornate worshippers are just kind of seen as these crazed psychopaths who just kill everything in front of them but that's not the only aspect of them. And that's not the only aspect of the world eaters. It's just the one that's at the forefront. So yeah, overall good story though. Yeah. Um, so I guess for the readers, we're going to be kind of just skipping over Scions of the Storm and the voice. Um, they're both decent stories. They just didn't stand up. We're, to... we're going to talk about the voice. Oh, we are going to um, talk about we, the voice. But we are going to skip over Scions of the Storm. Yeah. Uh, I'll just do a quick summary of it. It's the... Word bearers are doing a compliance on a planet. Um, I think it's Sor Talgron is the name of the captain that's the main character. Yeah, that's his name. And here's one of the things I thought was really funny in that story is that they refer to him by his full name through the entire story. He's like one of those people that always refers to themselves by their first and last name. Yeah, they do. The, <laughs> it seems to be that combination of ST because they do that with Saul Tarvitz too. Where it's yeah, just... but like people will refer to Saul Tarvitz as Saul or Captain Tarvitz, but this guy's like Sol Sor Torgron yeah. or whatever. It... <laughs> but uh, yeah, so anyway, he's um, basically the idea is the Legion has kind of bounced back from their humiliation that they received their sanction from the emperor and they're starting the great crusade again with new zeal and they're leading a compliance on this planet. Um, basically they land down, they find out that everyone's worshiping, you know, false idols and all that kind of stuff, or at least that's what they believe. Um, Sor Talgron moves in, breaks open the force field and finds out that what these people are doing is worshiping the emperor. And the twist is you find out that Lorgar has turned to chaos and that this isn't a war of compliance. It's a war of anti-compliance, I guess you could call it, against the planet. 
And now Sor Talgron, using his full name again, has to make the decision of where his loyalties lie. Does he side with his Primarch and Legion, or does he side with the Imperium? Now, don't we see that the, the book that they're worshipping him by is actually the word of Lorgar? Yeah, it's the Letitio Divinitatis. <laughs> so how did they get that? That's so the, that's really magic? not explained. Yeah, it's it's not explained in this story. It's explained later that before the sanction, uh, Lorgar printed multiple copies of the Divinitatis and distributed it around, and somehow this a copy of the book made it onto this planet, probably from a passing trader from another part of the Imperium that had met the word bears. And they okay, so they didn't just come up with it, it on their own. Yeah, through no. some it was somehow okay. distributed there, and they somehow got a copy of it and decided to start worshiping it. There is a pretty good scene with that where Lorgar realizes what the book is and like pulls the person aside and is like, "Do you know what this is? I wrote this. Let me sit you down and tell you the ninety nine reasons why it's wrong." And how I'm going to, you know, completely destroy your faith. And the person's like, what? Yeah. I do. The one part of this story that I do really enjoy is that you, from the second that Erebus shows up, you're like, he's just going to fucking wreck everything. (laughs) And he stabs that dude. Yeah. (laughs) You're just like, fuck you, Erebus. (laughs) There's, there's a pretty interesting line there at the end where Erebus says, you know, the, the Lacticio is nothing. It was it was a mere stepping stone into what comes next. I'm working on something new, and it's to be my opus, and it will be called the Word of Lorgar. So you yeah you get the scene that he's already writing this manifesto to chaos, so to speak, and it's it's going to be this galaxy shaping event, much like the Lacticio was there at the beginning, where. It, it, it was the foundation of the cult of the Imperium, and now you'll have the, the foundation to the worship of chaos coming soon to a, to a bookstore near you, more or less. Yeah. So, yeah, that was Signs of the Storm. Um, I mean, it was a good story. It just didn't grip me like a lot of the other ones did. So The, the themes of the Emperor's Divinity will show up again in the, in the last church a little bit, so I'll, I'll touch on that when I talk about that story a little bit more, but that's about it there. And it's yeah. sad. Shed a tear for those poor people. They didn't deserve it. Yeah, our next story is The Voice by James Swallow. And I really like James Swallow as a writer. I think he, he's done a good job. I think he did the, the uh, Blood Angels books for 40K. And they're they're really good novels. But my, uh, my beef with this story is that it's pretty slow. Now, we do have some reoccurring characters. He brings back Amandira Kendall, the Oblivion Knight, and her adjutant from... Flight of the Eisenstein. Sorry, I couldn't think of it. And I thought they were both, uh, at least Amandira Kendall's a really interesting character to me. I like the Sisters of Silence. I think they bring a lot to the galaxy. They're tasked on this mission that one of the other black ships has uh, missed their, like, two or three communications in the past month or so. So Amandira Kendall's ship is tasked with investigating to see what's going on. And when they get there, basically... You know, 99% of the crew is missing or dead. There's no sign of prisoners. Sometimes what they do find are these cells with a exploded corpse in them or just a, a dead rotting body. And it's it's pretty horrific. It's a very grim, dark setting. It's very much like um, 
event horizon where they're investigating this derelict ship and they're finding all this horrific shit. And it's, uh, it's pretty gross and somewhat in- intriguing. And when they get to the core of the ship, they find the rest of the oblivion knights that were stationed on this ship have set up this cordon around this psychic anomaly where uh, they, it's explained that, you know, through the, the sister sign language, basically that, something from the warp breached their barriers and set the most powerful psychers free. And they all congregated in the middle of the ship. So they're able to go and investigate uh, this inner portion of the ship and, and figure out what's going on. And they make contact contact with this mutated psychic amalgamation of all the most powerful psychers. And it starts speaking to them with the voice of Amandira Kendall's adjutant. And she's freaking out like, uh, she, it's kind of been from this adjutant's perspective, I can't remember her name now, but she uh, she's kind of had this inner monologue of like, am I ready to take the, the trials of silence or whatever it is? Am I ready to face the burden of not having a voice for the rest of my life? And as she's kind of conversing with this psychic thing, she figures out that I've kind of always had this lingering doubt, but I, I'm willing to serve the the emperor more or less. And as we find out, this thing says it's her from the future who's come back with a warning, saying that the the warning that Garrow got in Flight of the Eisenstein wasn't heeded properly, so another messenger was sent, and it's her. And she's cut horrible deals. She's destroyed her soul. Uh, this power from the warp was strong enough to burn out her pariah gene. So she's no longer an untouchable. It means she can be affected by the warp. And before they can learn what the message is, the uh, other oblivion knight there destroys it. And before anything else can happen, the ship starts to disintegrate around it, uh, around them because of the unraveling of time. And the, the conclusion of the story is, uh, kind of flat for me. I don't know that this is a good story. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Like I said, I thought it was slow. It was boring. The punchline is that Amandira Kendall survives and she's shaking with rage that uh, the, the other Oblivion Knight killed her adjutant as well. And that's what causes this, this whole ripple in time to destroy the ship. And, you know, they talk to uh, this other Oblivion Knight talks to Amandira Kendall and she She's breaking her vow of silence, basically, but there's no one there to believe her. So it's it's kind of a weird scene to me. I don't know why why she uses her voice. I thought it was a little kind of jarring, almost. It, it's not really in theme. I don't know why she breaks her vow. Well, I think is the adjutant Leilani. Yes, the third yes, one. That's it. Now I remember. The question is, why would anyone who knows anything about the Sisters of Silence think this plan would work? You know, right, because they their immediate instinct would be to destroy the warp fuckery, right? Yeah, go appear to anyone else. You know, yeah. don't take over a black ship and appear to more sisters of silence. Go anywhere. So that that part just seemed dumb. It's like, okay, you've got this amazing power. You take all these uh, these packs and curses on yourself. Okay, go somewhere else instead and make it work. That was dumb. You know, I I really did. I was really enjoying this story as I was going through it because it's a horror story and it's a good horror story. 
until the end and the end just falls completely flat there's the sister uh talking to amandira kendall and it doesn't make sense of why and then there's the again the why would you do this to the sisters of silence you know they don't exist yet but it'd be like a demon getting sent to the gray knights um it just it it doesn't work also i didn't like this idea that there was something strong enough to burn out the pariah gene because that defeats the entire purpose of the existence of the pariah gene um yeah, I think this falls under kind of the category of really old lore that has since been retconned. Um, I don't think this is a theme that they've really ever come back to or really talked about ever again. The, that does show up in one of the Eisenhorn books. One of his acolytes has his gene burned out as well. That's the the last Ravenor book, actually. It's the last not Ravenor the Eisenstorm, book, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I just don't like that. You know, this is... No, un, I, I totally agree with you. I think yeah. you're right. And James, James Swallow is guilty of this, I think, a little bit in Nemesis, where he kind of writes the... Uh, is it the Caluxus assassin? The, one, the ones that are anti-psychers? It, the writing for their ability, their prior ability is very ambiguous at times. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not really in keeping with uh, some of the, a lot of the other lore, basically. Other than that, like you said, it's a great horror story at the beginning. The end really falls flat, though. And I, I think I was telling Man- Maniple a couple days ago, I could have done with another story between Eisenstein and this one about the Sisters of Silence, because in the middle of the book, you meet this other Oblivion Knight, and they set it up that her and Amandira Kendall have this rivalry, but it's it's not really showcased other than when they're communicating, they're just kind of bitchy to one another. If we had had another story between then and another story to kind of get to know Lilani a little better, it would be a little more sympathetic at the end, but as it stands, it's kind of... It, feels like a throwaway character in a lot of places. Is that kind of how you guys felt or am I? The, the great downfall of having a bunch of characters who are mute is that you don't really have the ability to build that much of a relationship with them. Right. But Leilani hadn't take, taken the vow of silence yet. So you had that opportunity. And like I said, another story, it would have been awesome to get to know her and then set her up in this one to be working towards taking her vow of silence and then the the payout being like she never makes it. And well, it just doesn't happen. The other thing that really bothers me about this is they talk about right at the beginning their encounter with the Lord of Flies on Luna and how everybody's pretty rattled from that. And then it's just, well, business as usual. We're gonna go round up some psychers and call it a day. No, like you guys know that like that the heresy is out in the open at this point. It should not just be business as usual for anybody. Well, there that does show up uh, in Master of Mankind. They're collecting psychers for a reason, so it's not necessarily business as usual. There is a method to their madness. Yeah, well, that doesn't come across in this story. No, that's that's totally fair. I get that yeah. it's not communicated well. Maybe that maybe that setup isn't. Um, uh, you're right. There, there's just no payout or uh, payout for it until very very far down the line. 
All right. Well, that was The Voice. Now, let's get into the much-anticipated Last Church. I personally think this is the best story in the entire book. Manipole, I am absolutely excited for your breakdown, so why don't you take it away? Well, this is the this is the big one, probably the one that gets the most commentary. I, th- I know there's been a even a cartoon, a fan cartoon made of this. And when people talk about about this story, they'll bring up things like the clock and their their first this is kind of the first place we really get a, a really good look at the emperor himself. And I don't know that this is equaled later on where you find out a lot about him. The problem here is that you've got an author who's writing about something that he's not as smart about as he ought to be. It'd be like if I sat down to write a book about chemistry um, or a book about a chemist. Uh, I, I could only go so far with my limited understanding of chemistry. Then I would have to just say, oh, and then the reaction happened and, and, and then the chemical was blue. But I wouldn't always get that right. But if, if a trained chemist was writing that story, he could go through the full process and get there. Graham is talking about some high theological uh, themes in here, but his level of knowledge is that of probably a, a angsty college student. That's kind of what it sounds like, because this is when he's having his debate back and forth with the priest. And I'll, I'll get into the, the meat of it here. It never gets really beyond that first year of college uh, and your, your first you know, beginner's theology or philosophy course, that's about as far as this gets. Yeah, I, I want to echo that agreement. The The arguments that the priest makes, and I'll let you get into your, your breakdown here, but the arguments that the priest makes, that's that's not even someone who I would say is in the faith would make. Like even, even a lay person can make a better argument for religion than this priest makes. Yeah, so it starts off with this, this priest who's in a a sanctuary somewhere. He's getting ready for a midnight service. That's some service of the light. You recognize that there is a, uh, there, there's a clock on the altar and this is not something you'd see in a typical church. You get the idea that this is a Christian church. However, this story takes place now 28,000 years in the future that by this point is somewhere in there. I would like to think that the, the religion has, maintained some things and changed some things by then. So we don't really know what religion actually looks like. He does have a holy book. Is the holy book the Bible? Is it some conglomeration of other holy books that have been brought together? We don't know. Uh, We do know that the the Bible stories we have now, some of them do have their roots in history as far back as 10,000 years. If you look at uh, where some of the earliest stories of our civilization came from, they can date back there. And we still see like the, the flood myth. We still see creation myths. We still see these things that are very ancient. Could these same stories be continued 28,000 years in the future? That's, that's likely, you know, why not? So we'll assume that he is of a Christian like faith that has been modified over the years because of the, the many wars that have happened in this time as well. There have been cataclysmic disasters and the complete collapse and rebuilding of civilization multiple times by, by this, by this era. Despite that he's in a church, he's living in a, a time that he knows is secularized, uh, atheistic and rational. So he may very well be in the last church. However, he has strong faith and he has some parishioners. 
He's expecting them to come from midnight mass or midnight light service, whatever it might be. And he looks outside and there are um, some guys standing outside with, um, with torches. And then this man comes in and they start having a conversation. The man is very curious about what is going on here. The priest offers him a glass of wine and they begin having this discussion about faith. The man coming in is a, a doubter. Uh, he, he doesn't believe in faith, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the need for religion. The priest himself has a very strong belief, but can't really explain why. And they start going back and forth, examining the building, talking about the beautiful art that is there, and trying to come up with uh, either a, a proof for the existence of God or a complete disproof. And I don't think either of these arguments are very sophisticated. But when you guys read it, what were kind of your impressions of their kind of opening arguments? I thought they were dry. I mean, like you said, it's a very let, let me let me state it this pretty... way, uh, Were you convinced by yeah. the emperor to not believe Same in God? Up. No, because no, I wasn't. I, I mean, I am a man of faith, so I I have my own understanding. Of, you can't really explain belief or faith to somebody that doesn't want to see it or that's not seeking it out. Does that make sense? But, but that's yeah, kind of, but that's where a fallacy of the story is at, is that there are no good rational proofs of God. That's what the emperor is trying to, and because the priest responds with pure sentimentality. He's got just the sentimental feeling that he encountered God one time. And now you should believe because of that feeling, but there are other ways to prove a, a the divine. So for instance, the, the, the priest says, well, I, I had this experience and now because I have the experience, I don't need to explain it. Well, there are various proofs and I don't need to get into all of them, but one is was called, um, if you look at, at causal causality. So right now, everything that exists is a cause from something else. So if a plant grows, it's because it's got dirt. And dirt came from other decomposing things and minerals. And those decomposing things came from other things. And then it got turned up by other things. And then it, you know, the, the sun warmed it. But the sun came from somewhere else. And you keep going back, 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 back. Eventually, you, you have to say, well, there's got to be a first cause for something. And for for me, that definition is, is what I then call God. God is the first cause that gets everything else going. Or likewise, you might you might take it from the ex, uh, example of like functionality. So, for instance, if you wanted to explain to a space alien what our world was like, you might send them some objects. So, put them in your space capsule: a fish, a bird, and a dog. All right. And then you ship that off to this alien planet, and when they get that fish, they can examine it and say, "Well, look it it has." These gills that let it transform water into, into extract oxygen from water. It has these scales that let it move through water. So there must be water on this planet. Okay, I can kind of get what that is about. But the dog, it's got pads on the bottom of its feet. There must be something for it to walk on. There must be like a firm surface. Okay, and the and the bird, it's got these wings that, that can flap and move. There must be some air on that planet. So by looking at the functionality of the thing, you can see what it is surrounded by or what it is adapted to. In your life, 
hopefully you can understand things like truth, beauty, goodness, hope, happiness, you know, take any, any of those good things. And what I say is, well, all that is what God is. So God is the source of all those, those good feelings, those good emotions, those good thoughts, feelings like truth and beauty. Because like when you look at a flower, how do you know it's beautiful? And can you define that to anybody? And all flowers are different. And when you, when you look at a flower, you know, oh, that flower is pretty. Oh, it smells nice. Well, those things have a source in something further back and, and on the side of the idea. And that is, for me, that's, that's where God comes from. Now, that might not be a convincing proof for somebody who's an atheist. And I think that's where fruit you're getting at is that, well, the emperor doesn't want to believe. So none of those proofs is going to do much to him because he's so arrogant. I mean, can you just feel the arrogance just flowing off this guy? He's he's very sure of himself and he's he's got a firm mindset that there's there's nothing. And he says this in the story. There's nothing that contribute or that religion contributes to humanity that a secular belief cannot and he's very firm in that belief is that what you guys yeah, got as he's well? definitely very arrogant i mean he introduces yeah. himself as revelation he is a hundred percent ironclad in his yeah. uh in his belief uh Manipal, i i agree with you that you know obviously i don't think that the storyteller graham mcneil here is mature enough to make the unmoved mover argument in any kind of good way so i'm obviously not surprised that we see it even though i completely agree with you and what you're saying there but one of the things that i i can't stand in this is when he gets into the oh you know religion has killed so many people and i was like you know what's killed more people land just land disputes which guess what the unification wars are a land dispute yeah and and, and the, the secularists even in our own time have beat religion by 10 or a hundredfold on the number of people they've killed. Atheistic communism has knocked it out of the park. That that is a line that almost made me flip my lid when I was reading this. He says, politics have killed their millions, but religion has killed their billions. I was like, shut up. That's not even though. It's that first year college student argument. It's just not a good argument on either side. I half expected him to start bringing up the flying spaghetti monster. Like, that's the level of argument we were on. Yeah, and I will say, it is kind of like you guys are saying, it's the college level, you know, religion and atheism 101 discussion. But that being said, you know, expecting a, like, really high-grade philosophical and theological discussion from a sci-fi, you know, fictional book, is probably asking a little too much of these writers. I think the big theme there, kind of going back to like loyalties and grimdark, is just it's setting up the idea that the emperor is 100% behind his ideology, regardless of, you know, how much it holds water. And it it is setting up that idea of this is the character of the emperor. He is stubborn, he is arrogant. He refuses to acknowledge he is wrong, and that's going to be a theme that will come up later in other books whenever the Emperor is mentioned by other people. Yeah, and and the big setup here is that the Emperor is trying to get rid of religion because he's trying to begin this great rule of, of secularism and peace and harmony among all people. 
but he's willing to do that by the destruction of billions or trillions of lives. And when the priest asks him, how do you know you're right? He says, because I know I'm right. He doesn't even try to, to explain himself. And then you also find out, you know, and the story of the, the priest's life for me is the most interesting part of the story where he talks about how he was such a rogue and he went all around the world and did all these amazing things. But on this battlefield, he met the emperor and this, and he thought the emperor was God. And that's where his belief came from was the man standing in front of him. And then of course it's revealed that this stranger is the emperor and the emperor is so arrogant. He doesn't realize that by what he's doing, he's laying the groundworks for belief that would eventually turn into the 41st, the 40, 41st millennium where belief is in the divine emperor is, is rock solid all throughout the Imperium. Yeah. You know, I I've always kind of, and this is getting off on a bit of a tangent, but I've always thought of the emperor as an oxymoron because the emperor is the perfect man, but the perfect man does not exist. This, it, it does that, that whole groundwork that he's laying it, you know, we've talked about it in earlier episodes. I, I think that this, you can't escape human nature and the human, the human soul cries out for, for the Lord. And so, you know, if, if you take that away, that hole is going to attempt to fill itself with something else. Yeah. And I think the, the great experiment of the 20th, the 20th century was to see how societies would do without organized religions. And in the countries where it was tried, it was a disaster. People did, when you remove the moral foundation for people's lives and try to replace it with government, you, you, you come up with this horrible amor- amorality that uh, destroys whole civilizations. I think even Napoleon figured this out after the French Revolution, where he was cynical enough to recognize that the destruction wrought by the French Revolution was counter counter beneficial. And he said, we found out we couldn't destroy religion, but religion could have been a great way to get people to do what we want. So he determined that he should make the make it a state religion instead and control it. And that would give him all the control that he wanted over people's lives, along with all the military power and everything else, without having all the going through the rigmarole of having to kill kill all the priests and nuns again. So, you know, over the years, even secular leaders have recognized that if you get a a puppet religion, it's much better than trying to get rid of religion altogether, because then you give people something to kind of to latch on to even if it's just a facsimile of the real thing. Uh, um, and I know you guys have some other thoughts, but think about this while we're moving toward, toward the end here. The clock is supposedly counting down to doomsday. And when the emperor finally fires the church and he's walking away, the clock is striking inside. So did Graham, as the author at the end of this, say... Well, clearly, you know, even though it looks like the emperor won his argument against the priest and you know, he's destroyed the last church, because the clock is going off, does that signal that the emperor is in the wrong here, that the emperor made the wrong choice? I think that's what Graham's kind of, he takes the side of religion in the end by having the clock chime its note. So one other thing I want uh, readers to kind of keep in mind with this as we move on with the series um, is not just the re- the religious angle, um, but how this ties into the 30K and 40K setting, um, specifically how this is going to lead into the imperial truth and the purposes behind the imperial truth. It hasn't really been talked about in the books up until this point, 
Um, so I'm not going to really get into it very much there, but in terms of like how the emperor's plan is moving forward, there is at least some rationale that later on gets fleshed out to be a little better um, with how the imperial truth is denying chaos worship um, and that sort of thing. And that makes a better argument. It's just not done in this short story. So I, um, I had a friend who, when we launched this podcast, he said, I want to start reading these books. I'm going to follow along with your podcast. Um, still following along with us now. Hello. You know who you are. Um, but the first thing he asked me is he's like, does God exist in this universe? I said, no. He said, okay, I'm on the side of the emperor then. Because if there's no God here, then there's no, there's no, that then I'm, I'm on the side of who's going to be benef- most beneficial to humanity. And that's obviously not chaos. There, there are definitely a lot of things I like about this book. I've been very hard on it. Um, you know, in the past few minutes, again, because I, I don't hide the fact that I'm a believer. So that it, it, it's something that, that hits for me personally. Um, one of the things that I actually really love in this is just a little tidbit of part of the mural that they look at on the ceiling is a golden knight fighting a silver dragon. Now, where does that come from? That we know it, that's actually the emperor yeah. fighting the void dragon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He showed up in mechanical. So I, I enjoyed little tidbits like that, or, you know, the, the priest thinking he sees God, he actually sees the emperor. So these ideas where the emperor's supposed divinity uh, they're, they're really sprinkled throughout uh, this story. And I think that's actually done very well. Yeah. So I, and I don't want to uh, dish on the story too much. I think if, if you have somebody who wants an introduction to 40 K and this, this book itself would not be a bad way to, to start and to get a conversation going about some of the philosophical and theological depth that 40 K has or 30 K has, this is a great place to, to go. You know, you want to have a discussion with some of your nerd buddies about uh, some deeper topics uh, that this gives it to you. Uh, doesn't handle it in a particularly sophisticated way, but not everybody has multiple theological degrees and wants to get into that. But this is a place where you can, as you're rolling some dice, have some arguments about, about you know, religion. Give it a try. See how it goes. Manipul's two favorite to- topics at Thanksgiving dinner, politics and religion. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I think we could go ahead and wrap it up here. This uh, kind of a shorter episode for us, but uh, you know, the, these short stories—they're they're pretty good, but they are quick. Um, and I, I will say this—you know, just around to the group. Did any of them feel too long or too short to you? Because I thought most of them were right about the length that I would have expected out of a short story. They got what they needed to do done but they didn't get overly detailed. Yeah, they seemed about right. I felt like Karn should have been dead about three times considering the manhandling he got by Angron. I thought, okay, he's got to be dead now, right? No, but he kept going, and then he's still standing at the end. Yeah, so. He's got the strongest Angron armor of all. Plot armor. <laughs> yeah, it's that movie trope of everyone gets to say goodbye to their friends and loved ones before they finally kick the bucket, you know, no matter how grievous the wound. No, I thought... All of these stories were really efficient. I know I said the voice was kind of slow for me. I thought there was there was just a lot of descriptive material, but it, that goes a long way into it being a horror story. I kind of glossed over a lot of that. 
other than that kind of being my only, I, I don't even know if I would call it a gripe. That was just an observation. Other than that, I thought the word count on these was very efficient. They're nice, tight, clean stories. I don't feel like any of them have like great big giant plot holes that are exploited in other books. Maybe the uh, maybe the in the voice showing up to a bunch of sisters of silence, not a great move. Other than that, um, no, they're they're all pretty pretty good to me. Maybe some are a little more boring than others, but uh, they're they're all good stories in my book. Going back to that descriptive element in the voice, I really did enjoy that. Um, what did you guys think of the crew surf who tried to crucify himself? It was so vivid, and I was like, oh, man. Oh, yeah, right that was that really part, I was brutal. like, dang, this is a horror story. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, that's very early on when they first board the ship. That's one of the mm-hmm. first things they see. Oh, it's, it's pretty gnarly. All right, well, I think we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here, guys. Um, we, uh, like I said, we enjoyed most of these stories. There were some parts we didn't like. I think we've talked about them ad nauseum. Uh, appreciate uh, Paul Manipole. Always a pleasure to have you both on. Um, we'll look forward to having you back again. Uh, our next episode, I think we're going to do another hobby roundtable. Uh, I am trying to get us a guest on for that hobby roundtable. We will see if that bears out. If uh, if it doesn't, that's fine. You'll just get the pleasure of our voices again. But uh, again, uh, Manipole, Paul, Warwick, Always a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Thanks, guys. Good night. Yep, I had a blast. All right, well, thanks for stopping by again, everybody, and remember to march in fortune. Mm